Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Anne-Marie Peer joins us in the studio for our fortnightly theatre review segment in which we're going to talk about some stuff that's currently on and we're also then going to, Anne-Marie, cast our eyes yeah. back over the year that was. and 2022 is nearly over, Richard. We've, we've, we've survived, I think. We, I, yeah, we're b- here. Barely. We are still here, <laughs> Richard. We and are. we're back in the studio. We can see each other. You're not at home sick. We're not on the phone. We're not on Zoom. And it is so lovely to be here. <laughs> it is lovely to have you here. Let's start with a show that is currently showing at the Malthouse Theatre. A show we've both seen for yes. once. Yeah. yeah. Uh, an, an intriguing combination of theatre and dance. Yeah, Monsters. Yeah, Monsters has had such extreme reactions. And I read, I, you know, I wrote my review of it and I've read some other reviews and I've spoken to other people and no one seems to have had the same reaction to this show, which is something I kind of love about it. It's one of the things that intrigued me yeah. as well because I didn't get to go to the opening night. I had to cancel my tickets to the opening mm. night on the, the weekend previously because of... Uh, Kind of lurgy. Um, I didn't go to opening night either. I went to the next night. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I mm. saw it on Tuesday night. Yeah. Um, just this week. Uh, so, Monsters is a work. It, it's a. In on one level, you describe it as a one-woman show. It's it, Alison so White, uh, <laughs> accomplished actor, mm. uh, performing a script. By M Hoy. M Hoy. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I was going M or Emily. Mm-hmm. Um, M Hoy. Um, it's a script about a woman who descends into a sinkhole to find her missing sister. Because sinkholes have been appearing all over the world suddenly. Yeah. yeah. It is directed by Matthew Lutton, mm. the artistic director of Malthouse mm. Theatre, with choreography by Stephanie Lake. Yeah. Uh, and this fusion of dance and monologue on an exquisitely designed and lit set. Uh, uh, by Paul Jackson, who actually yeah. did the design as well as the lighting, that has these little trap doors and these... Oh, I'm so can't think of the word. I'm going to say swirly things that the actors crawl through and all these hidden things so these the actors, the dancers can just appear and disappear and you have these moments of where did they go? Where did they come from? And the mm. lighting then also mm. gives us just flashes of movement in the mm. dark. Now, watching this work, the first thing it made me think of was the Neil Marshall film uh, The Descent. The Descent, thank you, thank you, you don't know... What yeah. that means to me, because no one else has seen that film, and it's one of my absolute favourite films. And The Descent features a group of mm. uh, of female cavers descending into the into oh. an underworld, and the first half, the horror, is all psychological yeah. because it's about claustrophobia, mm. and then they slowly start to realise that and they are not alone. There are in that cave. Look, The Descent is possibly my favourite horror film. It's the one I go to. I have to admit, I love horror. I love having the... But Jesus scared out of me in the dark. And this is something I loved about Monsters and possibly something something you loved about it too. My first thing was, for me, this was a psychological horror play. And when I said that to some people, they look at me and go, huh, no, no, it's Orpheus and the underground. It's a a metaphor. It's No, for me it was horror. I agree that it was horror, but I don't necessarily think it was completely successful no. horror. Comparing it to Matt Lutton's Picnic at Hanging Rock, yeah. which genuinely unsettled yeah. and disturbed and I wasn't frightened scared. me. No. Paul, yeah. I wanted you I could see the lighting, I could see the safety, I wanted pitch black. I wanted the bejesus scared out of me. However, I spoke to someone afterwards who said they sat there holding their girlfriend's hand, terrified for the whole show. And I'm saying, but we could see the light. It wasn't dark enough. I'm glad it terrified them. Yeah. So for me, Monsters was a fascinating piece of theatre to watch, mm. but it felt by the end a mm. bit one note. Mm. I, I, I'll agree with and, that. And I think that's an issue with uh, Matt's direction, mm. um, that Alison, who gave a great performance, mm. nonetheless gave... Uh, uh, she. I wasn't scared for her. No. And that's what we needed. I wanted to be terrified for that character because... One thing I will say um, I did love about the script, I did not know how it was going to end. And I I know the genre. And I was going, I don't know how you're going to end this. But, yeah, it was like, come on, give me that extra. 
Mm. How do you feel about the choreography being integrated with the theatre elements? I, I loved it. But I, what I felt was I could see Stephanie's work and I could see Matt's work. And what was happening is what we need is one director to integrate the two of them rather than... Yeah, these two different things were happening on the stage. And, yeah, happening simultaneously but yeah. not integrated. Yes. That was my feeling mm. as well. Yeah. So I'm really glad... I loved both of them. But yeah. I wanted that... I wanted that... But, again, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be scared. Yeah. Some people wanted metaphor. It's... Monsters yep. is on at the Malthouse until the 11th of December, so finishing this weekend. It's divided yeah, Melbourne's go. credits. Um, it's had two stars uh, from uh, from Tim Byrne. Oh, it's, it's had yep. four stars from other critics. Yep. Um, Which is absolutely wonderful. Go up and make your own mind up. And I think it's one of those shows... You're going to enjoy something about it and go and support Malthouse. Yeah. See Alison perform. See some amazing dancers. Have a drink, you know, just enjoy yourself. Yeah. So for more info about Monsters at the Malthouse, mm-hmm. jump online, www.malthousetheatre.com.au. I also briefly... And watch to... The Descent if you want the bejesus scared oh, out yeah. of you. It's a fantastic um, The film. English version with the English ending, not the American nice ending. Yes. Yep. Um, I'm also going to uh, talk briefly about A Christmas Carol at the Comedy Theatre, which... Now, I've confession, yeah. I've never read any Charles Dickens, not any. Oh, wow. I'm familiar with some of his short stories mm-hmm. um, through adaptations of his mm-hmm. ghost stories. Yeah. Uh, uh, ghost stories at Christmas in the UK were a big thing for a while that they'd end up being shown on the ABC. I've seen Phil Zachariah perform um, A Christmas Carol for, I think it was Eagle's Nest Theatre years and years and years ago. So quite familiar with it. And yeah. I've seen Miriam Margulies doing The Women of Dickens. Yeah, I've I saw seen that. various mm. film adaptations. Hell, I've even performed in uh, <laughs> and, uh, Oliver uh, playing Fagin in a high school musical <laughs> 40 years ago. Um, but I've never actually read A Christmas okay. Carol. So, Tell me about it. So this is a production currently showing at the Comedy Theatre. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Wenham, uh, who I had a huge crush on as Diver Dan when I mm-hmm. watched Sea Change back in the 90s, um, plays the character of Scrooge mm-hmm. and does a lovely transformative job of moving mm-hmm. from the uh, the bar humbug Scrooge who hates humanity yeah. to somebody who, because of... Uh, meeting the ghosts of Christmas past, present and future is transformed. Wenham makes that transformation believable. Um, Lighting design is beautiful. Sound design and music is beautiful. Uh, The work integrates the audience and the theatre space in a really intriguing way. Not always successfully, but depending on where you are seated, there will be elements of the production that you cannot see because a character will suddenly appear on the balcony above you ah. and you can't see them. And, uh, yeah, that venue, yeah. Yeah. But um, overall, I found the first half pre-interval a little bit slow. Mm-hmm. It's got to introduce all the characters, all the setting and scenario. Uh, mm-hmm. but it's too short a show for an interval. Go straight through. They have to sell drinks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then after interval, it all came together and yeah. I was wiping away tears. Aww. Now, you know me, I cry, kind you, you of, cry, I cry you know. a lot uh, easily. But I, I was moved and delighted by the second <laughs> half of A Christmas Carol at the Comedy Theatre. So it's one of multiple productions of A Christmas Carol. Yeah. Uh, Victorian Opera have got a, an updated Australianised version of A Christmas Carol about oh. to open, I believe. There are productions playing in Sydney. There are productions mm. of A Christmas Carol all over the country at the moment. That's what it feels like to me. And what that says to me is it's the same reason why we have productions of Phantom of the Opera yeah. and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat playing simultaneously in Melbourne. Mm. We've had a really rough three yeah. years and people need... Need familiar. They need familiar yeah. and comfort. Mm. And that's what these shows are providing. And here's you and me. I want the bejesus scared out of me. I'm watching <laughs> shows about trauma. Uh, before we move on to the rest of the year, I um, saw a simple act of kindness at Red Stitch on the weekend. That's a new play by Ross Mueller, who's been one of my favourite playwrights for many, many, many years. And... If, you know, if Ross writes that I'm going to go and see it, um, uh, Lou Wall was performing in it and Sarah Sutherland was performing in it. Both who are performers, if they're in it, I'm going to go and see it. It was one of those 
shows it's a buying a flat in the burbs in 2020. Oh my goodness, what could possibly go wrong with the world at that time? And a couple who are pretending to be a couple, the parents have to move in and it's a 10-year-old building and it has concrete cancer. It's pretty much everything you could expect of that play and it was written so perfectly for the Red Stitch audience. I had a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. But it was one of those I'm going so observational, sharply observational, without giving that extra I don't care. Because you're going to, is some of them going to die? Is someone going to get killed? It's, and it's, I don't care. But it was funny and it was worth seeing and it's Red Stitch. Go and support Red Stitch. Uh, Ross Mueller's A Simple Act mm. of Kindness is showing until the 18th of mm. December at Red Stitch. Go to www.redstitch.net. And for info on uh, the Old Vic production of A Christmas Carol, mm. adapted by Jack Thorne, directed by Matthew Walkus, uh, and starring <sighs> David Wenham, uh, <laughs> go to christmascaroloustralia.com.au. Now, we've got 10 minutes left. Ah! Let's talk about the year that was. Did you see any particular themes emerge? Look, there was a lot of... I've talked a lot about trauma and mental health, particularly over the fringe and the shows we kept seeing about people telling very, very personal stories. When I went through my list last night, you know, you go through, I don't remember that, and there's a, oh, my goodness, I saw these amazing shows that I hadn't forgotten about, but the shows that really struck me were ones that were seen by very, very few people and you want them, they deserve to be seen by so many more people. But they were people telling very personal stories where they found that truth in the story that might not actually be their personal truth, but it managed to create a much bigger truth and resonate with an audience. Um, I'm going to run back to Luke Hopper in a minute too, but on to that, like Jules Allen wrote a piece called Betty at Theatre Works about her relationship with her mother with dementia. Rosaline Cox's piece Mad Woman about her moving to Melbourne. Slap Bang Kiss by Don DiGiovanoni um, that was at least on the MTC education program that got seen by more people. Naomi by Patrick... Patrick, I don't know if it's Livesey or Livesey, and by now I should have learned how to pronounce your name... Um, they wrote a story about their mother's suicide. I still get shivers when I think about this. One called Pieces of Shit, the worst name of a show all year because it didn't reflect the show. Um, that was on at the Butterfly Club by Bronte Charlotte and Lee Scully. Grief Lightning by Mary Angley. So I want all of these writers, I want to see more of you because you're writing absolutely beautiful work and I want them to know that even if, only a few people saw it. I often wonder if these people know the impact they have on that very, very few people. They wouldn't have made enough money to buy a cup of coffee at the end of the show, but you are making an impact and that sometimes worries me when I think people don't know, even if aren't, there aren't many people going, you are making an impact. And Lyric Opera, I do want to talk about another show. Um, they did I IFAS. Local company performing a work by an Australian composer, which is Eleanor Katz Cheran. It was originally written in the 90s about women and feminism and gender and, you know, the budget of nothing. And it reminded me of just how powerful opera is. It was one of those shows you were there with, there from the moment those lights came on. It was on at Theatre Works to the moment it ended. And all I can think of all these other opera companies with so much money who just get so stuck in the tradition of what opera, in quotes, should be that they forget it's something that we can do for here and for now. Some of my highlights, mm. um, I don't know, did you get to see the Double Bill Stardust and the Mission? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed Chapel. that, yeah. The Mission uh, of that Double Bill, mm. I thought um, Tom Molyneux's The Mission really stuck in my head and my heart. I'll put that in my list of that great list of writers. Tom's writing in that was yeah. astonishing. Uh, and that was a piece about um, one of the first Aboriginal soldiers mm. from Victoria to enlist uh, and fight in World War I and what happened upon his return to cut to uh, the late Condomission. Uh, I, it just felt mm. like so beautifully written and observed. Mm. Uh, it's and all coming back to me now, right? yeah. you know, when you talk about it. And I think that, that thing with theatre when, okay, we're re 
we're re-remembering, we're remembering that experience and that show. Yeah. And it wasn't our story, but we still connected with her because there's a truth in there that's so much bigger. As part of the Fringe Rebound program, much earlier in the year mm. at Trades Hall, Telia Neville's uh, oh. Little Monster, <laughs> which was a story about mm. mental health mm. using share household metaphors. Uh, and it was so delight. I The night I saw it was Kelia's first performance in two and a half years on yeah, stage. Yeah, I, I was there that night too. Uh, and it was both the joy she had mm. of, at performing mm. again and thanking the audience yep. at the end and the show itself, which I'd previously seen in a digital format. Yeah, the fact that she had... I'd seen it a couple of times in its digital format. I loved it so much. And to actually see that live, I do remember that night so well. Uh, another highlight, which uh, I don't think you did get to see, I was over at the Adelaide Festival earlier no. in the year. I got to see the work Watershed, The Death of Dr Duncan, which is an mm. oratorio oh. about the murder of yeah. um, a gay man who was bashed by police and thrown into the Torrens River and drowned as a result. His mm. death was the trigger for gay law reform in South mm. Australia. So he died in what, I think it's 1972. Yep. Um, uh, and... South Australia became the first state in Australia to mm. uh, decriminalise homosexuality as a result of this horrific crime for which no one has ever uh, been yep. kind of been sentenced to, to a penal term for. Um, we all know the cops did it, um, but uh, a powerful and beautiful piece of work. And again, one of those pieces of work we need to see touring, we need, our, we need us to see it. Yeah. It will play differently in Melbourne because seeing it in Adelaide, yep. you walk out mm. of the Adelaide Festival Centre and next see to and the see, Torrens next River. Next to the Torrens yeah. River, exactly. I've been, I've growing up in Adelaide in yeah. the 70s, yeah. So you, you I was there. Of, it had a yep. very, it, it resonated so beautifully. A um, mm. couple of other things I quickly want to mention mm. as well. Um, Geraldine Quinn's Broad as oh, part of the comedy every festival. Every time Geraldine did that show, even when she redid it, I was away. I will see it one day. And quickly, well done with that Queenie van der Sant in uh, the James Terry Collective's performance of Next to Normal as a performance that, oh, goodness, I want to see Queenie do that again. Uh, Benjamin Nichols' Sirens as part of Fringe this year yeah. at Trades Hall resonated with me really mm. strongly. I don't think it's a perfect work, but mm. I'm a critic. That's yeah. I often <laughs> will pick holes in things. But as a piece of writing, very, very potent and, and engaging. Yeah, I really want to and see the, the next performance. Of it. Kind mm. of um, Benjamin's performance mm. was astounding. I remember you and I went on different nights and had such different experiences of that show, which was the whole thing. It's a different show every night. Yeah. Uh, and I also want to acknowledge the annual homophonic oh, concert always. series, um, which was at Midsummer this year, and then they also, as part of the City of Yarra's Leaps and Bounds mm. Music Festival, did a, a project called uh, Homophonic Presents Respect uh, which was a series mm. of new compositions uh, set to and exploring musically the biographies of uh, it's queer Victorians. such an amazing project that, again, not enough people know about. I know um, when I first saw one of the first ones a couple of years ago, I was crying in La Mama at a piece of music about somebody's story and I thought this is how powerful this stuff can be. Um, how about dance, very oh, quickly? Stephanie Lake's manifesto. manifesto. Yes, we had to talk about manifesto. Let's just say we all saw it. We loved it. We didn't all see it. There's, mm. It sold out. Yeah. Um, uh, it has seasons at Adelaide Festival, mm. um, Perth Festival mm. next year. Um, I really hope it comes back mm. to Melbourne. Ten drummers oh. on stage. Robin Fox's yep. score was – I was after ten minutes, I was like, are ten drummers – and no other in instrument's going to get repetitive? No. no and then not. kind of this potent, mm. uh, glorious choreography. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, manifesto. Every second of it. Such a delight. And the raucous piece, um, Here We Are Amongst You, Kate's last piece with raucous, um, with the all oh, the clothes on the stage. Goodness, I love that. And it was it was a hug. Mm. Oh, it, it was, was a, a hug. A work as a hug. And the other dance work I wanted to mention, which was uh, also part of Rising, uh, Marageku's Straight Talk. I didn't see that. Oh, <laughs> it, it destroyed me oh. in the best possible way. Wow. A story about um, the fact that this is a nation... Uh, mm. uh, 
in which incarceration runs through our DNA. Mm. It's how we were founded. It's how we still operate today with our first peoples and many other peoples as well, refugees and more. Such a potent, palpable, powerful work that, again, had me wiping away wow. tears. Which is why we keep going, why we keep telling our stories. I'm going to quickly finish with um, two shows that I thought... Just one that got completely forgotten about, Kill Climate Deniers, the Monash Uni Student Theatre. was out at Monash by a writer, David Finnegan, who I always have a lot of time for, created by students. It's about eco-terrorists invading Parliament House. One of these shows that ran for three nights and I think I was the only critic who saw it and I couldn't write or publish or do anything just because of the timing, that please, Monash Uni uni student theatre when they do works get out there you are going to be moved but my favorite show of the year um the, the one i oh god i'm only going to because you've invited me to and then we gave it best theater at the fringe award grand theft theater by pony cam and david williams it was over two hours of telling stories about theatre. It sounds so wanky. It was. It was absolutely glorious. And I just think after a fringe full of shows about trauma, this gave me absolute joy and it reminded me why we keep doing this, why we keep going back to theatre, why we see some absolutely strange things, why we see shows that make us wish we'd stayed home, why we see shows where we end up crying, why we keep doing this. So Grand Theft Theatre that did win Best Theatre at Fringe this year, I so hope this can be seen again because small, you know, it was a you know full audiences, but the impact it had on every person who went to that show, who I spoke to, said it had an impact, and that is amazing. Richard, what was what? If you could see one more show this year again, oh. Oh, now Richard's now looking up. Richard's so good with writing lists. I'm so bad at that. I, I just have a list of the 101 productions <laughs> I've seen this year, and for often, us, that's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I have look. I will apologise to a whole bunch of theatre yeah. makers and dance makers. <laughs> I have struggled to leave the house this year. I have become still a cli- saw 101 shows. I've, I've become acclimatised to my lounge room in mm. ways I did not expect would have happened at the start of 2020. Mm. I'm not going to nominate a favourite show okay. off the top of my head right now, but I will think about one well, and I will talk about it next week. Yeah. And Marie Pitt, thank you so much for joining thank us throughout you so the much, year. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been a joy. And thank you to all the artists mm. whose work we have seen, whether we've been very critical of it, whether we've adored it. Thank you for making for work. For making it and doing it. And, and for taking us outside yeah. of our comfort yeah. zones. Uh, and, and just and thank you. And for getting through for all those shows who've had to cancel and all those shows who's had to remount, all those people who put so much work and had to cancel your shows because of illness or other things, we, we know. We know how hard it's been this year and we've seen it on the stages. And, yeah, thank you. We'll see you all next year. Triple R. It's time for us to swap tracks and swap art forms and uh, we're going to talk about what's happening over in St Kilda at Linden New Art. I'm joined in the studio by Vincent Alessi, who is the CEO and director of Linden New Art. And, Vince, you started in the role only a few months ago. Uh, less. It's, I think this is my seventh week. Seventh week? Okay. So, to step back for a moment, what kind of person do you have to be to be the director of somewhere like Linden New Art? Well, I think you really need to be someone who's engaged in the arts community and has a, like any director of an art museum, I think you have to really be interested in what artists are doing today and and be a voice for them. And Linden has a very clear um, strategy and remit, which is about supporting mid-career artists, and that's actually one of the main reasons I was attracted to the role. But I think you you really need to be a champion for those artists. Yeah. Now, because previously, for example, you've been at La Trobe University M- Museum of Art, you've been at the Ian Potter Museum of Art at the University of Melbourne and elsewhere. So you've more than cut your teeth kind of in the visual arts world. I, w- I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. But. <laughs> It's not just contemporary Australian art that you're passionate about. You're also quite passionate about the work of Vincent van Gogh. 
Yes. So I, I live a, a split life. So I'm actually trained as an art historian, and that is my, my area of expertise, and that's something I still continue to work on. Um, with this new role, obviously, it'll be a little bit less time dedicated to that. Um, but as a, you know, working within the museum sector, I've always worked with contemporary practice, um, you know, whether it's been at those institutions you've mentioned um, now at Linden and also um, at the um, artist run space, which I established a few years ago with some friends, Connors, Connors in Fitzroy, which is very much about experimental practice. So I, I feel actually quite comfortable oscillating between those two spaces. And I think it's because artists look backwards as much as forwards so you know having that art history training has actually allowed me to engage with contemporary art and I think in a slightly different way because I'm sort of understanding that things aren't made in a vacuum and that artists move backwards and forwards all the time. And why in particular did you want the the, the gig at Linden? I said the thing that really attracted me the most was this um, remit to support mid-career artists. Uh, now partly that's because um, many artists who are deemed mid-career in this country are of my generation, so I already have established relationships and friendships with a lot of these artists. But I'm also a really firm believer that I think, you know, there is a possibility for a lot of mid-career artists in Australia to fall into a Bermuda Triangle, you know, where they're not the young and the exciting and the, the flashy new, and they're yet not at that level where they're going to get a large survey show at a major institution. So... Um, but yet they still, you know, have dedicated a significant part of their lives to making art and are still making art and are still making really interesting things. So to be part of an institution that has that as its focus um, is really the main reason I was attracted to Linden. And the other reason is it's, um, it was one of the very, very first art galleries I went to when I started my own journey looking at art and wanting to buy art and engaging with artists. And it's you know, it's, it's been around for 40-odd years. Um, so it's a really, I think it's a really important institution in the city and to be given the ropes to run that for, you know, the next decade, hopefully, um, is really exciting. And, you know, to build on what's happened there in the past is really exciting. Now, given that, uh, that focus that Lyndon has on mid-career artists, I wanted to segue for a moment. Um, I wrote a story this week for Arts Hub uh, based on uh, a survey that uh, was conducted by Theatre Network Australia, who uh, one of the findings of that survey is that 51% of independent artists are considering a career change. They're thinking about leaving the arts. So um, where, uh, let's see, the 19% of respondents are exiting the arts industry altogether. 32% are undertaking some kind of career change because... Uh, the last couple of years have been so hard. And mid-career artists are more, much more likely than emerging or established artists to be retraining or leaving the industry. So that's in the performing arts. Is there a similar pattern happening, happening do you think, in the visual arts? I would say anecdotally, yes. I've, I've spoken to a number of artists that I've known for a long period of time who are asking themselves that very question. Can I continue to make and be able to survive with minimal income. And, and I think that's the reality for a lot of artists. Um, my response to them always is to, to support them because I think, you know, a, a vibrant community, a vibrant society has people... Ha we, we need artists, we need musicians, we need theatre makers. We need those people to, to reflect on who we are. But I think anecdotally, my experience is, yes, there's a lot of artists who are, are questioning after 20, 25 years' practice whether they should go on because, you know, they're getting at that point in, in their lives like me. We're getting older and, and you, you, you do want a, a, some sort of safety, uh, particularly financially. Um, so that's, you know, that's what excites me about Lyndon is that um, our role is to try and help them as best as possible, not only by giving them a platform but by supporting their practice as best as we can and, and that includes financially. How does Lyndon support an, uh, a mid-career artist and their practice? Is it just through presenting an exhibition? Uh, so it's obviously presenting through you know, exhibitions, it's paying artist fees, um, it's about this new prize we're launching, um, which is a significant um, uh, cash prize attached to it and an exhibition. Um, but I think it's also, you know, I've always really been interested in speaking to artists and asking them, what is it that you want to do and, and how can we facilitate that? Now, sometimes that's simply just giving them a space. 
but other times it's actually you know either introducing them to people or um, giving you know commissioning the work so that it can be realized and that's really where I mean Lyndon is already at that at that place but I'd like to expand that even further so that we become known really as an artist first institution and that people want to work with us because what we're there doing is facilitating their voice and their vision and that is naturally going to feed into what we do and and, and speak about us. Let's talk about the new art prize that uh, Lyndon has just launched. Uh, like, and when I say just, I mean literally this week. Yes. Um, uh, so uh, the program is called Juncture. It will support two mid-career artists with a cash prize of $20,000 each, which I should point out, $20,000 is, is more than most artists in Australia make from their practice in a given year. I believe the benchmark figure is 18,000 or 18,500, perhaps, uh, if you're perhaps in literature, I think, is the figure. But it's not a lot of money. So 20 grand, that's a significant amount of money as a prize for an artist. What are the... Tell us a little bit more about what's around that. So I think one thing that that I'm really excited about this prize is that that $20,000 the gallery doesn't determine how that money is spent. So it will be... So artists will apply. We're not choosing a best work in an exhibition. We're wanting artists to come to us and say, this is where I want my practice to go or this is what I've always wanted to do and applications will be addressed on that kind of merit. And then that $20,000 is for the artist to use as they wish. So if an artist says... That $20,000 is going to enable me to go overseas and do research for six months and work with a particular person and then come back and make a body of work. That is fine by us. So we're not determining what that money is going to be used for because the artists are the ones that know best what that's going to be used for. And then they're going to have 12 months to go away, work, develop an exhibition, and then that will be presented and sitting alongside that will be a publication that documents that process. So that's one of the other things that I'm really interested in, Lyndon, is the idea that, you know, there is a role still for monographs and publications in documenting someone's practice in a really intelligent way up until a certain point in their in their career. And so that that is what will define juncture, is the money is there to support the artist's as they see fit for their practice. And we're also interested in artists who are at a point in their career that they may want to you know, push the kind of technology they use. They may want to push their work conceptually in a new direction. They may want to collaborate with someone that they haven't had a chance to. So it's very much about saying to artists, what have you always wanted to do? Where have you always wanted to go? And how can we make that happen for you? For more info about the new Juncture Art Prize being offered by Linden New Art, jump online, www.lindenart.org, and you'll find the details about Juncture on the website. Applications open for all Australian mid-career artists from the 23rd of January until the 3rd of March. So that's coming up in the future, but right now uh, is the... Very traditional, uh, and I'm sure there would be howls of outrage if a new Linden director came along and went, oh, let's get rid of it, it's tired. Um, the Linden Postcard Show. Yes, and I was asked that very question. <laughs> are, you, are you getting rid of the postcard show? And my, my quick answer was no, and the reason being, it is part of Linden's DNA. It's into its 32nd year. Um, I love the fact that it's very democratic, it's egalitarian, if you apply, you get in. Um, this year we have just over 850 artworks on display. So I really like the fact that it celebrates the artists in all of us. And it can be someone who just tinkers away at home and makes for themselves but wants an opportunity to show their work. It can be for someone who is still at art school and just wants to test their ideas in a public forum. So for those reasons... I'm really excited to keep it because I think it does all those things. And it's and it's a great um, community project in a really, really great, um, fun way um, to have... We, we finished installing yesterday to walk around and just see the diversity of practices, the diversity of things that interest people um, is really exciting. And it, and it doesn't really matter what stage of their career those practitioners are at. Some of them, as I said, are just happy to make things for themselves. And, and but, but I think what that says is that there's artists in all of us and we should actually really tap into that. Given that Linden New Art is located in St Kilda, what kind of local engagement does the 
the, the Linden Postcard Show have. In terms of entries, for example, how many of your entrants are from the city of Port Phillip? I haven't had a look at the stats this year, but it, it, it usually is almost half. So, it, so there is a, a great draw from the local community and um, the visitation is likewise, is drawn from the local community. And this year, for, well, for this iteration of Postcard Show, we're actually building some sort of um, public programs, including um, a Gospel Sunday drinking session with our new friends, the Gospel Whiskey. Um, and that's just a way to really create Linden into this space that it is for the community. So you can come, have a drink, listen to a band, chill out in the lovely gardens and also go through and look at the artwork. Um, so really drawing in the community in those ways um, is going to be really important for us. Now, as you say, the Linden Postcard Show, in its 32nd year, it's really developed a, um, a following, I think. It's one of those shows that people go, oh, let's go and see the postcard show. Correct. And the work is postcard-sized. It has to be, what, 8 by 10 is the format, but it can be in any media. Correct. So it has to be 8 by 10, no bigger than that. It has to be able to be installed on the wall. So they're the only two provisions. Um, and it's really interesting to see the way... Um, people respond to that. There's this amazing work of a, a small diorama, which is of Jackson Pollock in his studio, cigarette hanging out of his mouth, um, splashing his paint on, on the floor, that iconic photograph that's been turned into diorama. Um, there's another work that um, is, is a, a plastic bag filled with blue water and plastic ducks. So I think that's what is really exciting, is that people... Um, work within those restrictions in really interesting ways. There's something about the restriction that actually facilitates creativity rather than restricts it. Correct, yeah. And um, and I actually think it's really difficult to work on a small scale because, you know, we're, you, know you can stand in front of an enormous artwork and you, you part of the sensation, um, the visceral sensation, is because of its size. So trying to get that kind of impact on something small I think is really difficult and I think most of the works in the show do that really well. Any plans to collaborate with TheatreWorks? You've got these two significant cultural institutions within kind of like a, a stone's throw of each other. Uh, yes, so um, with TheatreWorks, with uh, Gasworks, which is a little bit further away, the um, National Theatre, which is around the corner. So I've slowly been getting around meeting our neighbours. Um, and I'm, I'm really keen to, to work with all those organisations because I think quite often... Um, there's no reason why, if Theatre Works are putting on a performance that has some sort of link to the exhibition we've got on, that people can't come to the exhibition at 4 o'clock, 4.30, have refreshments, have a talk, and then go and see a theatre performance that links ideas together. So we've, we've just started speaking with our neighbours about how we better do that. And, and actually getting people to come to St Kilda, I think this is one of the other really big things for me, is getting people to come to St Kilda and actually doing multiple things at the same time. Um, you know, I, I, I live on the north side of the city and we all know in this city the, the north and south divide. But the one thing that um, has um, has always been there whenever I visited St Kilda, whether that's to see live bands or, you know, go to Linden, etc., is it still does that have that bohemian art heartbeat when you walk around the streets. And so, and when you see the number of cultural institutions there that are doing really interesting things, it's actually how can we work together to really cement, you know, St Kilda is that, that it never lost that heartbeat, that it's actually still there. In the 1800s, when the first train line uh, kind of linked St Kilda, uh, it definitely became a, uh, a place for day trippers. Uh, and so that's clearly something you hope to re-encourage. Yeah. Um, and day trippers that do a bit more than go down to the beach and get an ice cream. Um, you know, as I said, like, I, I know for me, you know, growing up in Melbourne, you know, St Kilda was this kind of mystical place because of its arts community and its music scene um, and, I, and I said I think I still see that being there and to get people to come and actually experience that and enjoy that and see that it's a vital part of their city I think is really important. To come back to the Linden Postcard Show, uh, the 32nd annual Linden Postcard Show, so over 800 works yep. from artists from across Australia yes. but a lot of them from local, the, yeah. local artists. Um, there are, what, 14 prizes to be won? There are. so um, And they're quite varied. We have uh, a, a couple of prizes, which is purely around abstractionism. We have indigen a prize for Indigenous artists. We have prizes that are about portraiture and landscape. Um, and so we just work with, we work with a, a great team of supporters and sponsors. 
and it, the, the prizes very much match their interests. Um, and I think it's great. It's, it, I, I like the idea that we're not saying there's one best work, but we're actually sort of sharing the love a bit and saying, well, there's, there's all these various approaches to making art and we would like to celebrate as many as those as we can. And when are those prizes announced? They are announced at our opening on Friday. So openings from 6 to 8 and the uh, prizes will be announced at 6.30. So that's from this Friday night and then the exhibition open to the public from Saturday. From Saturday. So the Linden Postcard Show 2022 to 2023. Reception this Friday from 6pm to 8.30pm and then open to the public from Saturday the 10th of December through until the 26th of February 2023 at Linden New Art, located at 26 Ackland Street, St Kilda. Open Tuesdays to Sundays, 11am till 4pm and, as you would expect, closed on public holidays. For more info, go to www.lindenarts.org and... uh, Go to St Kilda and make a day of it. Go to the Linden Postcard Show. Uh, go and see a show at Theatre Works. Get an ice cream, stroll along the beach. All those things that you can do. I've been chatting to Vincent Alessi, the CEO and Director of Linden New Art. Vince, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Over the last month or so, we've been checking in on what some of the major interstate international arts festivals uh, have announced for their programs. We've caught up with uh, Sydney Festival and Perth Festival. This week, it's time for us to find out what's in store for the 2023 Adelaide Festival. I'm joined on the line by the festival's new artistic director, Ruth McKenzie. Ruth, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, Ruth, you have more than 40 years kind of experience working in the arts, including major international festivals, Holland Festival, Manchester International Festival and others. Before we begin to talk about the Adelaide Festival program, I'm curious to know what was it about uh, this as a gig that made you want to throw your hat into the ring? I guess there's two things. One is that... From the European festival point of view, uh, Adelaide Festival is widely considered to be the Avignon um, of Australia or the Edinburgh of Australia or even the Holland Festival uh, equivalent of Australia. That is, it's, it's, rec- it's a very recognisable international festival with a huge reputation around the world. So how thrilling is that? But also, I've been, all my life I've envied colleagues who have had the chance to explore the great quality of life you have in Australia. And I just jumped at the chance. You know, I'm, I'm living in Glenelg on one of the most beautiful beaches in the world. Then I've lived and worked in wonderful cities around the world, but I've never had a beach outside my front door. And it's, you know, it's a joy, really a joy. Now, One of the things that fascinates me about festivals is the way that a festival will encourage audiences to take risks and to see a work that they may otherwise think, oh, that's not for me. And I'm thinking of some of the the epic durational works that festivals (laughs) present where uh, if you asked me, would you like to come and see, I don't know, a a three-hour Shakespeare production in Dutch any other time of the year, I'd probably say no. But at Adelaide Festival, I'll come and see a six-hour kind of production or something along those lines. What is it for you as somebody who is so intimately connected to to festivals and the festival environment, what is it that festivals offer us and allow us to do that other arts events year-round can't do? Well, I I mean, for me, um, you know, the roots of a festival is the chance to have fun and to explore things about yourself and the world that maybe you don't get the chance to explore the rest of the year. And, of course... With an international festival, you get to see some of the great artists of the world who you may not get to see this year. But for me, you know, I think it's exactly what you say. It's about the chance to take a risk. And I remember talking a lot in Amsterdam at the Holland Festival about the idea that this is an artistic safari. So if you go on a safari, you don't know what you're going to see. You know you're going to have an amazing experience. You're going to learn and feel and see marvellous things. But you don't know if there'll be a family of elephants or there'll be, you know, a lion trying to kill another animal 
or there'll be nothing at all, actually. I mean, you can do a safari and not see anything, but John Cage-like, you might then reflect on the sounds and the, and the bird life and the fauna and the flora. Um, so there's always something that you discover. Uh, so I, I've always rather liked the idea that it's the, the appeal of the festival is in part the unknown, that you are going to see something. And my job is to make sure that it's going to be something you remember. And, of course, I love the fact that you've just referenced the Roman tragedies, which was co-produced by the Holland Festival with Ivo van Herver, who is, of course, coming back to the 2023 Adelaide Festival. And the Roman tragedy is six hours, as you say, of Shakespeare, where you could wander on stage and have coffee with the actors. You could come and go as you liked. What an incredible experience. And everyone still remembers that. It was, for me, certainly one of those reminders of the potency and power uh, that uh, a great festival has. Um, there was a, a depiction of grief in that production that cut me to the core. It was one of the most uh, exquisitely painful uh, moments I've seen embodied on stage. You have a unique challenge for the 2023 Adelaide Festival in that the, the program was initiated by your predecessors, Rachel Healy and Neil Armfield, and you are presenting the program. Did you have... Uh, was, was the entire program assembled and ready before you came on board or were you able to add in an event here or an event there? Talk to us about kind of that aspect before we delve into the program itself. Well, I'd say... I mean, it's, it's, it's a very normal thing in theatres. I've run theatres, I've run opera houses, that you inherit your predecessor's programme. So this isn't a new thing. And actually, it's a really great gift for an incoming artistic director because for the 2023 festival, I'm here, of course. I'm meeting audiences. I'm seeing the work. I'm seeing how the whole festival works. And I'm, I'm absolutely open in the way that maybe you're not after a few years to people telling me what they think should be changed or done better, really love. And that's a, a wonderful thing. You know, I'm, I'm going to be a one-person qualitative market research machine in the 2023 festival. So please, all of your listeners, come and find me. I'm quite recognisable, I've got black and white short hair, and I will be looking very tired. But I'm full of I'm full of enthusiasm to listen, and that's a really great chance for an incoming artistic director before, you know, we start programming the 24 festival, the 25 festival, and the 26 festival. Now, if we talk about some of the the events in the festival program, perhaps one of the the significant things about this year's Adelaide Festival, well, sorry, the 2023 Adelaide Festival. I keep thinking that it's next year already, yeah. and I know it's not. Um, uh, previous festivals, because of COVID, uh, had lesser numbers of international works. Some were uh, international works were streamed live for Ad Adelaide audiences. So this does definitely feel like a, a return to the, the Adelaide festivals of old. Uh, and one of the works that I'm most intrigued by is by, to my mind, one of the great companies in the world, Belarus Free Theatre. Now, this yeah. feels so politically timely and of the moment, uh, and I think it's going to be a, a really significant work to see. Exactly right. I couldn't agree more. And so this, in fact, we have to thank Kate Blanchett for this piece of programming because she rang up Neil Armfield and said she'd seen the show, Dogs of Europe, in New York and that it was essential that he brought it to Adelaide. And so who's ever going to say no to Kate? So here it is. And as you say, I mean, Belarus... Belarus is, of course, in the middle of the war with Russia against Ukraine. Um, the Belarus Free Theatre, one of the bravest activist theatre companies in the world, started literally underground in Belarus, but they mostly now have, have been forced to leave. They live in London mostly. And their work is always urgent, political, of the moment, and I'm, I hate to say it, it's still going to be in March at the moment when we're looking at that region with horror and fear. So that's a, a must, I think. Um, and huge thanks to Kate for tipping off Neil, because here it is. We get the chance to see it. Something that uh, a festival like Adelaide Festival can do is then also represent work that has been seen elsewhere in the country, which has had 
remarkable acclaim and give Adelaide audiences a chance to see that as well. In this instance, uh, the incredibly potent uh, dance theatre production by Marageku, Straight Talk. Exactly, which uh, I'm looking forward to seeing myself. Um, and it's a great chance for me to engage with, with those artists and begin, you know, another of the great thrills for me coming to Australia is to get to know and work with First Nation artists all over Australia. And that we've got a great program of First Nation work in the 23 program. And we're now working with some of those artists, of course, for the future, for 24, 25, as well as Marigeku. Of course, we've got Tracker, which is being co-commissioned by all the Australian festivals and is by Daniel Riley, the first First Nation artistic director of the Australian Dance Theatre, which, of course, is based in Adelaide. So, so your listeners can, can come across Tracker in Melbourne. But uh, for us, how great it is to have Daniel taking that company in a very exciting direction here in Adelaide and with us at the festival. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, Daniel's work, uh, Tracker and ADT, because for me this is one of the things uh, that the the significance of a festival, whether it's the Adelaide Festival, Perth Festival, Darwin Festival, Sydney Festival, and so forth, uh, is that yes, some Melburnians, the 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 truly culturally curious um, who can afford to travel will travel to Adelaide to see some of the works at the festival and then get bragging rights to their friends when uh, a work comes to Melbourne three months or six months later. But um, <laughs> that opportunity to for a festival to help develop new work that may only be seen in Adelaide or may well tour a year, two years, sometimes even three years down the track. And for the, the festival to be able to support unique South Australian companies like uh, Australian Dance Theatre, ADT, but also like Slingsby, whose work I've now seen at a couple of Adelaide festivals and been tremendously kind of moved and, and excited by. I'm so pleased you mentioned Slingsby because that's exactly what I was going to say. Because I think that always in every festival I've worked in, one of our duties, I'd say, is to show international artists that come from that, from wherever I'm working. That I mean, our job is to have a program of astounding international artists, and some of them will come from all over other continents of the world. But in that mix, you need to be showing off your own talent, the talent of South Australia, which is also of international standard. And so it's incredibly important. And I went to Slingsby for the start of their rehearsals, and it's a beautiful piece called The River That Ran Uphill. It's about the... It's a true story of, a, um, of, of, of how the small community coped with the flooding following Cyclone Pam in 2015. Um, you know, and I'm quite a tough and experienced show watcher, but I found myself in tears, and that's in rehearsals. So I take that as a very positive sign. So I'd say top tip, book for the river that went uphill, ran uphill, the river that ran uphill, beautiful title too. Hey? Now, one of the things that, is significant about a festival too is the opportunity to jump from art form to art form. So you can see a theatre work in an afternoon, uh, then go and visit an exhibition, and then perhaps that night see an opera or a recital. Talk to us about uh, the visual arts uh, aspect of the program, which will have its own devoted audiences. That's, uh, that's, thank you for that. As we've got a great coup, thanks to the Art Gallery of South Australia, who um, I really admire, I must say, and they are bringing exclusively to Adelaide um, never-before-seen-in-Australia um, pictures by Andy Warhol. And, of course, famously, um, Andy Warhol talked about 15 minutes of fame. But, so we're going to do a project these days in social media terms. It's 15 seconds of fame. And so we're asking anyone, anyone at all, to film their seconds of fame and post it with the hashtag 15 seconds on Instagram or TikTok so that we can uh, we can just begin to participate with the journey that Andy Warhol went ourselves as artists and I think that's a really fun project but also it's a great chance to look at Andy Warhol through contemporary eyes and he was way ahead of us wasn't he I mean how you would have adored social media there's also uh, a range of recitals and contemporary music as well. Um, I was particularly delighted to see that uh, the Breton composer uh, 
Jan Tiersen is has been programmed for the Adelaide Festival next year. Well, listen, I'm afraid I have to give you breaking news, which is that he has been forced to postpone his visit to Australia, which is a terrible shame. But um, but there's plenty else to see. And, in fact, I wanted just to just to talk about the work of Pavali Jumpanen, who, of course, comes from Melbourne. He's running your conservatoire, an extraordinary pianist, a great, great artist, and a great curator. And he's doing... One of one of Rachel and Neil's many wonderful inventions, chamber landscapes. So this is a weekend of chamber music in Ucaria, extraordinary, beautiful cultural centre up in Mount Barker, so up in the hills, where you get to experience um, an ensemble of great, great chamber music artists who work together and then present seven concerts over a weekend in the context of the hills, the gardens, the light, and he's responding to the light and time of day in his work, in his programming, but also giving us, I mean, really some great, great opportunities to hear some Finnish composers that we've not seen uh, or heard, many of us, alongside, you know, Debussy and Tchaikovsky and some of the greatest composers of all times, of course, including Pierre Boulez, whose work, Le Marteau Sans Maître, is an absolutely incredible work for people that have never, ever heard Pierre Boulez. He's in the context of Debussy, who inspired him, and it's going to be, that's going to be a magical, magical concert, I can tell you. I think something else that will be significant is uh, a work of scale that Adelaide Festival is presenting in 2023, uh, a production of Verdi's Requiem featuring 36 dancers on stage and more than 170 singers and musicians. Again, this is the kind of work that can really only be done in a major international festival. Quite right. And this is a, this is a great hit from Europe by the choreographer and director Christian Spook who is the director of uh, Zurich Ballet. But in fact, he's, it's being presented this autumn by Dutch National Opera in Amsterdam. It's touring around, you know, it's being recreated around Europe, and we're recreating it in Adelaide with Zurich Ballet. Zurich Ballet coming for the first time ever to Australia and only in Adelaide, as you say, working with our incredible singers who have, and the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra who have been built up so much through the policy of Rachel and Neil's international opera every year. And this is going to be the most number of people on stage, we think, of any of the operas. Verdi Requiem, a, a, a piece of such force, of course, where the singers are going to have to dance with one of the best ballet companies in the world. So we're setting the bar really high for them. You know, they've got to sing and they've got to become part of the ensemble dancing. It's going to be an extraordinary thing. Um, book now, I would say, because the tickets are selling incredibly fast. So that's at lowfestival.com.au. Sorry to turn into an advert. Not a problem at all. Uh, given that uh, Rachel and Neil have uh, placed a, a major operatic work at the heart of their programme, do you feel any pressure to continue that as a tradition or will you be creating new traditions of your own once you begin uh, presenting your first festival in 2024? Look, I mean, I'm not going to move away from one of the most successful features of Rachel and Neil's festival. And for me, coming from the world of opera, I'm thrilled. So we've already already programmed our operas for 24 and 25 and 26. So, because, of course, opera houses, you know, they're planning 26 and 27 now. So, you know, it's best to get in soon, and they are flagship projects of great scale. And that is just a joy for me to have the chance to bring some incredible artists from some incredible opera houses uh, from Europe over to audiences in Adelaide, and I hope from Melbourne and Sydney as well. There will be new things, don't worry, there will be new things, but I'm, you know, I don't believe in, I, I think it's mad not to build on um, the extraordinary success that Rachel and Neil have had in the last seven years at the Adelaide Festival. They've doubled the audiences, they've made the flagship operas a real um, tent pole around which other international artists can can gather, and why would we change them? Ruth McKenzie, a final question for you. Uh, when I was looking through the programme, a range of works leapt out at me. One of them, based purely on the image alone, made me go, 
this sounds like an intriguing show and one I would like to try to see. Tell us a bit about The Sheep Song. I knew you were going to say that, and I'm so pleased you did. So um, FC Bergman are a young collective theatre company from Belgium. I worked with them uh, when I was at the Holland Festival. We commissioned them. I think, in fact, taught by Eva van Herver in their early days. And I think that they're a really great example of another feature of Adelaide Festival. They Adelaide Festival has a reputation for bringing you today's stars from around the world, but also, as you say, allowing the audiences to brag for the next 10 years about how they saw an emerging star first. And I think FC Bergman is a top tip for a company that's going to be, be an example of you want to say that you saw them here first in the Adelaide Festival. Um, and Sheep Song is a great, great example of a project which is combining local forces with international talent. Um, so you'll have seen in the brochure the actors uh, wonderfully dress up as sheep, but they're going to be on stage with real South Australian sheep. So it's a kind of novel form of a co-production with uh, with FC Bergman and the sheep of South Australia. <laughs> I'm already intrigued and I urge people to jump online to check out the full Adelaide Festival program, www.adelaidefestival.com.au, the 2023 Adelaide Festival running from the 3rd until the 19th of March. We've only scratched the surface of the program. There's much more to explore. But uh, Ruth McKenzie, Artistic Director of Adelaide Festival, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Looking forward to seeing you all in Adelaide in March. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 